Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Thanks for coming on the Opera Biz Podcast inaugural season. I'm really stoked that you guys actually all came in and <laughs> willing to hang out and chat for a little while. Um, so why don't we start, uh, go down the row a little bit each about um, yourselves, what you do with the company, and then maybe... Steve, also, if you want to do a little bit about the company, um, sure. would be would be great for those who are semi-familiar, but I've got listeners that are literally all over the world. So. Right. Great. Well, I'm Steve Osgood. I am the general and artistic director of Chautauqua Opera Company. We are celebrating our 90th anniversary season this summer. Nice. Uh, we are the uh, longest running, not longest continuously running summer opera festival in the United States. We are the fourth oldest opera company in the United States, period. Wow. Um, yeah, which is, is interesting. It, it comes as a big surprise to many people who are even within our core audience. Yeah. Uh, we have to continually remind them, which is nice because it's always fresh news to them. They've forgotten. <laughs> that's good. Um, like, wow, oh, that's so exciting. Um, um, but the, the, the Chautauqua Institution was founded in the late 1900s um, as a center for, uh, for learning, for extended learning. Um, and generally people would go up there, they would uh, take steamboats up for the nine-week summer season and stay there the whole time, uh, pitching tents or, or living in little cottages. Um, and it was very much about uh, continuing to educate to, uh, to inform yourself throughout your entire life. The uh, Chautauqua Symphony Orchestra and the Chautauqua Opera Company were founded both in 1929. Um, and that was in some ways seen as a breakdown of the moral uh, integrity of the, the, the institution, that suddenly they had uh, you know, entertainers there whittling away at, uh, at the moral fiber. Um, but the, each of the, the organizations, the orchestra and the opera company, were designed to, to entertain, to, the, the audience was the, uh, the, the residents of the institution for the entire summer. So people would come up, they would be there for their nine weeks, and the opera company and the orchestra would produce over that extent of time. Uh, the opera company originally had six productions each season. The company would arrive, and then you know, you'd see one baritone in Rigoletto, and the next next week he'd be something else in Faust, and something else in Martha. The next week, um, it was a real resident company. Um, I started working with the company as a guest conductor in 2009. At that point, the company was producing four times each summer. Mm -hmm. uh, my first production was Tosca. We'd come up uh, about three weeks of rehearsal and two performances, and then the company would move on to the next production. Um, at the time of the, uh, the financial crisis, everybody's budgets you know, in the world were cut, oh, yeah. uh, including the arts at Chautauqua. So the company went back to two productions at that point. Mm -hmm. um, moving one of them out of Norton Hall, the 1,300-seat house that was built for the company in 1929, into the 5,000-seat amphitheater, which is the central location. It is where everybody goes every night at the institution. And what that allowed the company to do was, with one of the productions, really expand the audience that was seeing it. We'll have you know, 3,000 people at the beginning of one of our operas in the amphitheater. Nice. And you can look out and you can see five generations of the same family sitting next to each other. Other. Yeah. So I took over the company uh, uh, as general director for the 2016 season. 
Um, so I'm preparing now for my fourth season. As part of that um, first season that I was programming, it was important to me to be able to represent uh, some contemporary opera and mm -hmm. chamber operas, which is particularly important to me personally as an artist. And so we reconfigured our season a little bit and reconfigured our budget a little bit. Uh, and made it possible to add a third title. So now we produce three operas each season, the three main stage productions, one of which tends to be a chamber opera and one of which tends to be a contemporary opera. Often the chamber opera and the contemporary opera are one and the same, mm -hmm. um, although not, not this summer. Um, so now we are, we, we're a three, company, a three production season, but that being said, we have about 30 um, other concerts and performance activities in the course of our six-week season. Nice. So the company arrives around uh, the middle of June. We start rehearsals. First week of the institution's season tends to be either the last week of June or just into the first week of July, and then we perform for six weeks as part of our season. Nice. It's a nice. Six weeks is a nice stretch. That's yeah. It's a solid amount of time. It's not the whole summer. You have to disappear for... It's funny. The company, when I first, was first there in 2009, it was an eight-week performing season. And cutting that back for the staff, I think, was, was you know, a big blow. It was a big shift for yeah. the company. Now that's been 10 years. Um, when we speculate on what, you know, what the future of the company is, where do we want to see growth? Do we want to add more weeks? I think re-adding those weeks would be possibly a very heavy lift for yeah. many of our staff people. How is the how is the audience has it has it varied at all since it dropped the two weeks or has it been pretty much the same? Well our audience so it's interesting. What you know when I said about the the company was designed to entertain an audience that was in residence for nine weeks. Right. Well that has changed yeah. drastically because nobody Who's taking can off do, two exactly, months at right, a time. Right. Exactly. Um, so the model of even you know, a family going for a month or for two weeks at a time has in many ways dissolved. Um, so we see in many ways a, a constant turnover of our audience. Okay. And we're, we're trying to adapt to that. We're, we're tackling that in different ways uh, where before if you did an opera in the first or second week of the season and then brought it back later on, well, that. It's the same audience. That's not the case anymore. Right. So we're re, uh, reworking our programming to meet that. Nice. Pull that mic on over there. Yeah. Um, I'm Michael Berg. I'm the managing director for Chautauqua Opera. Um, I started in 2012 as the company manager, and people just kept giving me more things to do, so that eventually turned into the title of managing director. Uh, so it's my, my seventh season was the one we just finished. That's how it seems to go when you're in opera administration. Right. Like, and also this. Right. And this, too. Just keep adding hats and <laughs> make the title grow to meet it. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I make the trains run on time. That's, that's the whole deal. <laughs> At least the train's up there. Yes. Uh, yes. Manhattan's a different story. <laughs> and I make sure people know what time the trains are coming. So um, <laughs> my role, I'm Sarah Noble, and my role is um, Director of Marketing and Engagement as of this summer. Um, I started with the company in 2014. I spent um, just a summer doing a seasonal position uh, and uh, was then hired back full time in 2015 um, and have been with the company since in the same position, just sort of growing my my marketing domain over nice. <laughs> the rest of the company. <laughs> There's so much of job development that's just done on site. Mm -hmm. On the ground, you just kind of learn as you go. No matter, no matter 
how prepared you seem to be. Opera's one of those ones that just seems to be that, you're like, yes, I know what I'm doing. And then 50% gets thrown at you. You're like, oh, I've never run across this issue before. <laughs> but it works that way. You're talking to the people who... Um, are, who allow it to work that way because they actually succeed in doing yes. it that way. The people who don't yes. drop away. That's absolutely and, true. <laughs> uh, and they don't become the model for how an opera company can, can bring talent along. That's right. It's, it's, a, it's a trial by fire kind of thing. You don't last, you don't last. I mean, even when we, we talked about the um, kind of the, the, the drop in the economy that hurt so many opera companies. I mean, we've seen so many companies kind of fuse together to, in order to move on, or um, the ones that frankly weren't run well disappeared. And I don't always consider that a bad thing. You know, I've worked with companies that I was really confused as to how they stayed in business or how any of that worked. And then when basically shit hit the fan, then uh, they, they moved on and it was fine. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a life cycle in companies and in the industry and if you're around long enough and you can get the perspective to see to see the regrowth yes exactly um, then then it can hurt a little bit less but at the time you know each of those companies folding really well, and we're really definitely hurt. now seeing that regrowth that's yes. definitely something that's coming back around I, I know that I mean hell the moment we hit 2000 and everyone was worried about being relevant in the 21st century Everyone freaked out, and is, is opera going to be dead? How's you know what's going to go on? And opera is as alive and well now as it's it's ever been in the 20th century. It's mm -hmm. just a, we're just looking at it a little differently, which is why we have this exact podcast right now. Uh, so, as I mentioned, a lot of my um, listeners are young artists, young professionals, um, up and comers in the opera industry. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about. <clears throat> Kind of the, the 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 YA section of your program, mm -hmm. um, as it, it does have a, a great reputation and it's a, a very sought after uh, yap. Um, I, I I have kind of a focus group for certain things, and when I have certain guests on, I'll throw the names at this focus group and say, "What do you want to What do you want to know? What do you want to hear from this?" So a couple of the, the upcoming questions I got specifically from. Listeners. So the first one, first and foremost, was um, people wanted to know what your application stats were like. Like, how many people are you actually getting applications from? How many people are you hearing after those applications? Um, and then, how many actual roles are there to be filled or, or positions in the program that to be filled? This is an ongoing thing um, at other YAPs that I work with and that kind of stuff. People are like, how many singers are really out there? Who am I really up against? What's this like? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's a stat that I'm sure is well trafficked in your in your uh, podcast, but it's it's trickier. It's more competitive to get into a young artist program than it is to get into Stanford. Yeah. Um, we have 24 young artists with us uh, each summer. That is the structure of the company, uh, and where in. Some years prior to my taking over, uh, there was maybe a little fluctuation, maybe 25, maybe 26. 24 is really the target, mm -hmm. um, and we've been, been able to stick to it. We're divided into two different programs. Uh, we have an apprentice program, which is an AGMA contract, uh, and, then the other, and that is generally eight artists. Okay. And then the other 16 are, what are in our studio program, which is a contract through the institution. Um, we... As a company, per, uh, approach 
both of those parts of the program completely equally. Mm -hmm. uh, we expect the same things from them. The in general, perhaps you could look at it and say, oh, well, the apprentices are getting are singing the majority of the leading and supporting roles that go to young artists. Yeah. Um, and then the studio are taking Compromario roles and, uh, and covering that, especially going into our 2019 season, which is kind of, uh, well, is an entirely new structure for us. And, um, and I'm quite convinced is not going to break the company. <laughs> um, even that uh, paradigm has, has shifted substantially. Mm -hmm. So we have, some very very large roles being sung by studio uh, artists and we have some nice. you know some and also large uh, covering mm -hmm. done by studio artists so we treat them both the same the contract looks different mm -hmm. um, but we follow the same rules with all of the young artists mm -hmm. uh, so 24 slots to fill um, we have in the last four years tended to get just around 900 applications for them mm -hmm. Um, the screening process is quite elaborate. Um, they're listened to, they, each singer submits two recordings. It's listened to uh, both by Michael in screening and by myself. And from those, uh, at, from that larger applicant pool, we aim to hear between 400 and 500 live auditions. Mm -hmm. And you just, you just wrapped auditions last weekend, right? Or last uh, week? Yeah, a week and a half ago. A week and a half ago? And yes. Uh, so you ended, you ended up coming up with... Like over 400 you ended up hearing? What, what was the final number this year? Um, I think on. it was probably closer to 450. No, this, this year we actually slotted, by which I mean we scheduled auditions for yeah. 499 people. Damn. Um, oh, obviously, man, one more we right? right? Obviously people Swaggers. cancel, so that's not an indication of how many people yeah. we heard. Yeah. But we, we typically average just over 50% um, of applicants end up singing for So us. I have to ask this question since we're, we're on the topic of auditions. What are, your, what are your feelings on people that crash auditions? We don't allow it, unfortunately. Allow it. <laughs> no, 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 there we go. That's I mean, it. unfortunately for them. I, for us, it, it means an efficiency um, that we've already put in the work for, yeah. for somebody to, to screen. So, um, yeah, so we... We don't. <laughs> and, and I try to, we all try to really respect the process of engaging our young artists. Um, it's an application. Mm -hmm. you, you say, I would like to be part of this program. You send us your stuff. We listen to it. When we do listen to it, yeah. and then we choose who we're going to hear live, who we think are the competitive people, the most competitive people to, uh, to hear for those 24 positions. Yeah. Um, somebody cr coming in crashing you know, is, is just trying to get a 10-minute slot to sing for us, and uh, there, there's, no perspective, there's no context for them. Yeah. And we know our deadlines are getting earlier and earlier. Every right. everyone's deadlines are getting earlier. Yeah. So, so in some ways, uh, yeah, it's, it's also a matter of respect that you say, well, you missed the deadline, so that's what you're dealing with this year, um, or you adjust and you figure out how to accomplish those deadlines in in August and September. Right. And I think we, I believe, you know, are fairly um, generous in handling requests that come from specific singers. If somebody mm -hmm. says, oh my gosh, I just missed the deadline, or this, this happened and I couldn't make the deadline, is there a way for me to apply late? Yeah. We'll at least read the email, yeah. and we will consider it, and if there is a way, we will make it possible. But that's still, 
contact prior to audition day. Exactly. That's right. going through the, the process going of actually process. contacting you right. as a company and not just showing up and hoping for the best. Right. So, um, on, that, on that line of auditions, um, do's and don'ts. I always ask this of people that hold auditions. What are, your, what are some of the do's and don'ts that you, you like? What's some of the stuff you like from auditioners, what you don't like to see from auditioners? I'm going to let Michael and Sarah start this because they're outside the room. And yeah. Ooh, most yeah. of the do's and don'ts, I think, happen out there. The, the, the rest of the, you know, I, I'll chime in, but I want to sure. know what happens and outside the room. And especially leading up to the audition. They're Hang on just important. a second. I'm going to wait until he's done sawing downstairs. <laughs> As you do. Um, we can particularly speak to the do's and don'ts that happen in the lead up to before you get in the room. Don't sink yourself before you get in the room. Um, to me, number one is communicate with us. We're, we're reasonable human beings. And if, if someone sends us an email or, or calls our audition hotline phone and says, I am very ill and I will not be there tomorrow, we're going to help you out if we can. We're going to try mm. to reschedule you later. If, you're, if you can't find parking, if your train is delayed, look, we get it. But if you don't communicate with us, that kind of puts us in a bind. And we're stuck not knowing how to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're stuck knowing whether you're going to be there. Mm-hmm. So that being willing to, you know, just be professional enough to communicate with us and trust that we're not going to just rake you over the coals for having something happen to you that's not your fault. That's, that's probably number one for me. Okay. Yeah. I agree. Um, under that, I, I mean, I am severely type A, so my personality um, leads me to want other people to like prepare, you know, figure out where you're going, make sure that you have mapped out the subway, know that things happen, try to be early. Um, early is better then we don't have to call you 10 minutes mm-hmm. before your audition and go all right are you showing up because we're not sure um, I'm gonna say something that Steve Steve you may or may not agree with me on this just about the screening itself I'm actually interested to hear what you think um, a lot of young singers have stretch or reach pieces in their in their book that they're working on that they're learning and that's fabulous yeah it's a great idea. It's important. I wouldn't recommend including those as your screening selections. We had uh, every year we have people who are singing repertoire in their screening selections that is 10, 15 years away realistically. Um, I, I don't recommend that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that, that doesn't mean don't work on that piece don't it doesn't mean don't work on Zerbinetta please work on Zerbinetta that's great but understand whether or not that just because you're working on it doesn't mean it's appropriate or helpful to you to give it to us as an indication of what it is you do yeah I mean you're auditioning for the next season you're not auditioning for six eight years from now right yeah I mean I would say I mean I I would agree with you Michael the the we have all the materials. We have the resume. We have um, the, uh, the all of the information about where you go to school. But really, what we're going to listen to. I mean, what how we get to know you in the screening process is through what you sound like. Mm. So it's help us understand as quickly as possible how you 
how you sound, what, yeah. what makes you sound best. Mm -hmm. um, so that we can then say, oh great, that's somebody I actually want to hear live. We're not doing any casting from the uh, recordings that are sent in. We're figuring out who we're going to hear live. Yeah. So send in the best possible recordings that you've got. You know, as, as it doesn't have to be professionally recorded, but the better the sound is, the better we have a chance to hear what you sound like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times the notes that we pass back and forth through the screening process are, I don't know, it's really hard to tell because of the recording quality, but I think there's, I think there's something there. Yeah. What do you think? And then we end <laughs> up with like question marks as opposed to, oh yes, great, go. What about, um, <clears throat> how about what, how somebody physically presents themselves during an audition? Does that, does that mean a lot to you guys? How they, how they dress, how they appear, how they carry themselves? No props. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's, that's not really, that's not a thing for us, but for our musical theater friends, don't bring props. Don't bring props. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it does to a certain extent, um, but it's not so much the clothes, it is the, the way they carry themselves. Yeah. Uh, it really is the person who's in the clothes. Yeah. Um, you know, I've played back in, I've, in my mind, I've now having four cycles of our auditions behind us. I find myself sitting there thinking, why do they... Why do, they, why do we make them get dressed up? Are we making them get dressed up? Why do they feel the compulsion to get dressed up? Is, is that even so? Should we actually encourage them to just come in whatever? Yeah. Um, because it's, it's funny. You know, we're at the, at the Opera America um, Center, and I'll be in the room, and I'll hear somebody come in with a nice dress on, blah, 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 blah. They sing. Then maybe 10 minutes later, we've got a break. I step outside. I'm out in the lobby, and I see them in their boots and their, you know, their street clothes. I think, wow, that's a shame that they, that, that is expected. Yeah. I've, I haven't done anything about it because I do think that the way you present yourself as a professional yeah. is so much a part of your role in the company should we engage you. Right. Um, and so I don't stress out about what people are wearing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't pay, I really don't pay much attention to it at all. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it is, there is, a, there's a package that you're presenting. Yeah. You're, it's, it's your job interview. You're, you're, a, I, I, I mean, because I work so heavily with the, the, the visual branding with singers, it, it is, you are a business, you are a brand. And I know that there are schools, particularly in New York, and they will specify when they do their mock auditions with their, especially with their undergrad singers, they'll be like, okay, so you need to wear this. Mm -hmm. You need to, you know, the dress has to be this long, needs to be these shades, you need to wear these heels. Guys, you need to wear exactly this, 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 and this. Um, and it's kind of become, every, everything just feels really cookie cutter to me. I always like it when I have a client that stands out for a specific reason, but, uh, but that shouldn't be everything. We have 10 minutes with each of these young artists, with each of these people auditioning for us. And based on that 10 minutes, we're going to engage them, and, and of course, all of the stuff that they sent in. Um, but based on that experience, we're going to engage them for our season. Yeah. And the next time, in all likelihood, that I will hear them sing is on day two of our season when we do our singing. And I remember especially the first year, thinking, oh my gosh, what, I, 
who are these people <laughs> who I heard six months ago, eight months ago? Um, wow, I was really nervous going into that first singing. But what was exciting was that each time one of them got up and sang their one aria, I heard that thing mm -hmm. in them as a, as a musician, as a singer, as an artist, that was what brought them to the front of the pile back in November. Yeah. Um, and so, but that, that 10 minutes that we've got with you is our chance to get to know as much about you as possible so we can figure out how you fit in our, in our company and how you will be a member of our company. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, what you wear and how you carry yourself is part of that. Yeah. Um, more, what I, even if somebody comes in with the most kind of like just bizarre or off physical appearance, the way they have presented themselves physically, mm -hmm. when they open their mouth and they start to sing, if it is a first-rate voice, I couldn't care less. Well, at this point in time, you, like you said, you're listening to those recordings for real, legitimate screening purposes. So you already know at some level you want to hear what they have live. Right. So you're already past. So if they show up, they're already halfway through the they're process. Already <laughs> they're already halfway through the process. They're, you know, they've gotten through cutting down to 50% yeah. as opposed to cutting down to 0.25%. Um, so there, it's, um, there's still a long way to go. But, but just come in and show us who you are. Yeah. Let us get to know you. Come in. Don't apologize. This is, my, this is my one big don't from inside. Don't apologize for the fact that you're singing in front of us. Don't ask if it's okay if you sing your first aria. Mm -hmm. We've said, what do you want to sing? Tell us what you would like to sing and start. I like that. There have been, you know, and uh, yeah, I would like to sing blah, 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 if it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Just get on with it. <laughs> um, if it's not okay, I'll raise my hand. I'll let you know. <laughs> but I want, come, come in, say hi, introduce yourself. And, and say what you wanted yeah. to sing for us. We ta you talked a little bit about, um, a little bit about the, the Young Artist Program. What is the day-to-day -day like? For a young artist, for yeah. a company, for, for, for a the, young artist? For the, for, well, for the company in general and then for the, for the young artist. I mean, what, are, what can people expect being part of the program? Um, we have, we generally work six days a week. There's mm -hmm. one, one free day for the company each week. Um, this is, I think, fairly standard. The days kind of break down into a morning, an afternoon, an evening um, session. Um, for the most part, because of one, just maintaining a sustainable schedule, and then two, because it's kind of our, it's articulated in our agreement with AGMA. Generally, our rehearsal days will be six hours. Mm -hmm. um, what of one of the things that we try to do, and this has been an evolution over the last few years um, that we have been very kind of, it's been a front burner issue for us, is how to um, fully, um, uh, you know, we're paying, we're paying a fee, a, a weekly salary for our artists, mm -hmm. and there are a certain number of hours, you know, that we get for that. How do we maximize what we can get out of those hours? And how do we also maximize the amount of opportunity we offer to our young artists? Yeah. So one of the big shifts that we did a couple of years ago um, was to take the educational component of what we offer. Extra rep coachings, 
most of our diction classes, our combat classes, um, master classes, things that are uh, that are beyond both the main stage season and then the rehearsals and performance times needed for the ancillary performance activities. Um, and where prior to a couple years ago, everybody was mandated, you have to be at that combat class, you have to be at that diction class. Um, we have pared that down significantly, still offering as much mm -hmm. as possible, but making it uh, everybody's own uh, decision whether or not they'll take advantage okay. of it. So we won't put names on the schedule mm -hmm. um, for a combat class, say. If the combat teacher says, well, I want to do some work that just needs the guys or needs like an even division between men and women, you know, we might say, okay, this combat class is open to all tenors and basses. This combat class is open to sopranos and or mezzos, or if we, he wants half of the group, then we say, okay, sopranos and tenors can come to this. So we will we'll lead people in a way so that, so that the work can be done. Um, but we're not saying you must be there for that 9.30 combat class tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and we're doing that for most every element of our educational component. And it's been an interesting experiment, something that we've tinkered with over the, uh, the years um, to see how we can, again, still not, there have been a couple things that we weren't able to offer just because of structure, and we've tried to figure out how to get more rep coachings available mm -hmm. um, based on number of hours that we have and how to schedule those things without it ending up literally on the schedule. Um, so we try to leave maybe one of those chunks, the evening, the afternoon, or the morning, free for main stage rehearsals so that if there's a combat class, if there's a diction class, if there's a master class, then all of the young artists are able to take advantage of that if they're so inclined. Nice. Um, so if they want to make it into a 10-hour day, it can easily they become can. a 10-hour day. <laughs> We're probably going to be scheduling them for six-ish hours okay. each day so that we can stay within our weekly maximum number of hours and uh, within the daily number. Yeah and are sustainable because we mm -hmm, need them mm -hmm. to be healthy and active and in good voice all the way through the full eight weeks that they're there. And that, that's often something we have to impress on people right when they get there. Um, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. The season is a lot longer than it looks on paper. And especially in the first couple of weeks when maybe there's a little less going on in terms of the bigger rehearsals, people can really try to dig in and you know, spend all day in a, in, a, in a practice room if they're not in the rehearsal space. And we, I'm not at all ever going to tell someone don't practice. I am going to tell you, you might want to save a little bit because you're, you've got a lot coming up. Yeah. And that's, that's something we have to be really intentional about. Yeah. I mean, if you're not used to singing that much that often, right. that can catch up with you real fast. Right. Yeah. By that last week of the season, um, the last week of our, of our season traditionally features the young artists in a number of events. Every day there's a different event. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if you're not careful, if you're not stewarding your own resources with intent, that last week is going to not be as rewarding as it should be for you. Right, right. This is a great example of why YAPs are that bridge between academia and mm -hmm. the professional mm -hmm. world because, you know, I, there are some people that don't get any of that kind of 
information or that kind of scheduling in academia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when they hit the real world, it's a kind of a slap in the face. And they're like, I, I either blew my voice out or I wasn't prepared for this or I'm constantly exhausted or yeah. any of that kind of stuff. But with a little training and a little walking through it, you're like, this is, this is how real things work. If you're going to have a, a six-week schedule at an opera company, then you know, you're going to kind of deal with this. But we're giving you a little leeway to not die along the way. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, that particularly impressed me the first time I went to guest at Chautauqua Opera, um, I had been on the music staff at, at Santa Fe for six years. I had worked with uh, Lake George Opera before it was Saratoga. Done Opera North had done you know had worked my way up through the system mm -hmm. and encountered a bunch of different young artist programs. Um, one of the things I really loved about Chautauqua was that every young artist arrived and was expected to be fully professional. Yeah, you arrive. We're not going to treat you like a young artist. We're going to treat you like an artist and a member of our company. Mm -hmm. But within that, the company is structured with people and with a system that is there to support the young artists in that inevitable moment that each one of them will have, hopefully once, <laughs> maybe twice in the summer, where they stumble. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, great. And then, then the music staff, the directing staff, the admin team can kind of sweep in and go, okay, set, get you back up. You're okay, right? Okay, now move forward. Um, and then just get back to business. And I think that that as a bridge from school into the professional world is a, a really terrific thing. And it was something that I hadn't really experienced outside of Chautauqua. Yeah. I like that a lot. What's that face for me? I'm loving the music. Oh, coming from downstairs. <laughs> it's really speaking to me. Yes, we are here at uh, Gibbard's Beer Culture on West 72nd Street, my go-to place for podcasts. <laughs> it's my little... Uh, my little spiel. Cheers. Um, so let's talk about the upcoming season. Yes. Where do we start? Uh, first off, for those that don't know, uh, talk through what you're actually doing for um, your, your trio of shows. So season. our 2019 season designed to uh, make a big splash for the 90th anniversary of the company. Um, is three operas, and it represents the Beaumarchais trilogy, the Figaro trilogy. So, um, and each, with, each of them with a different kind of uh, take. Our Barber of Seville, the Rossini, is going to be sung in Italian in our main stage, Norton Hall, um, and will be a relatively traditional presentation of that opera. Mm. The version of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro that we're doing is an adaptation that was done by Vid Guerrero a couple years ago and has played here in New York a couple times called Figaro 90210. Um, it's updated, obviously, to Southern California, Beverly Hills, um, and it's sung in English and Spanish. It was originally conceived as something that would be with string quintet and piano, and that's how we'll present it as well. It allows us with this chamber presentation to play around with the space a little bit. So this will also be in Norton Hall, our 1,300-seat proscenium, mm -hmm. but we're switching things around. We're going to have um, audience seating on, on both on the stage and out in the house, oh. probably about 250 people for each performance, although we have the capacity to add seats if needed. Yeah. Um, so kind of an alley staging and that allows us to really play art experientially and yeah. immersively with the audience. Almost, uh, in, almost in thrust, but 
yeah, variation in the round, round yeah. the alley. Um, Eric Einhorn, who's the artistic director of Onsite Opera, is the stage director okay. for that. And yeah. so from the get-go, I wanted to work with him on something that felt that was either site-specific or made our site feel site-specific. And That's so, a great uh, character and um, acting exercise for singers. I remember the first play, because I used to do plays, I was an actor before I did mm-hmm. opera, and I remember the first play that I did in Thrust, and actually had an audience on three sides, and it was trippy, and mm-hmm. really, really weird, but I grew so much as an, as an actor and a performer during that one production than probably every other production combined prior to that. Right. You, you have to think about things in a totally different way. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Yeah. And Eric will be the perfect person because he has so much yes. experience with just working with odd spaces that yeah. he'll be able to shepherd everybody through what that really is. Perfect. Um, so in this adaptation, uh, Figaro and Susana are undocumented Mexican immigrants uh, working on the estate of Paul Conti, the Count, uh, his, uh, his wife, Roxanne, uh, who is a washed up actress. Um, and, and then, and then the, you know, the variety of servants and, and characters around them, but the, the social and power and political, uh, argument that Beaumarchais was making that, uh, Mozart and De Ponte brought to the opera mm-hmm. really is translated so fluidly into today. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of years ago when I was considering this season and saw Figaro 90210, I thought, wow, well, it's really timely now, but I'm planning 2019. Is it still going to be timely? Right. Well, here we are. <laughs> More so yes than ever. Still timely. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the second installation in our Beaumarchais trilogy. And then the third one is uh, John Crilliano's The Ghosts of Versailles. So wrapping that third, the weird third Beaumarchais play, The Guilty Mother, into the story of Beaumarchais and Marie Antoinette and the, and the French Revolution, that will be the production that we do in the amphitheater mm. um, uh, to close our season. And so what we have done is created for anybody who's at the institution early on in the season, they can see at least one, perhaps two operas, Mm. uh, because Figaro 90210 will open very early in the season and we'll do five performances of it. That is the largest number of performances for a single production. I haven't said this out loud, but probably ever for the company. Because I think it's right. always just two. Unless you count the education tour that we have. Uh, right, well, the education <laughs> tour. Right. Main stage season. Um, two, maybe three, they would add, like they were doing Fiddler on the Roof, uh, the company would add a third performance. Um, what are the dates of the performances for each of the shows? Do you know? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Um, June 28th is the opening of Figaro 90210. It's that Friday. Uh, and then Sunday, June 30th. Um, and then subsequent summer uh, Sundays, so July 7, 7 14. and 14. And then the final one is July 26th. Barbara Seville opens July 5th. The second performance is July 8th. And then we bring it back again later in the season for July 25th. And Ghost of Versailles is July 27th. So for those of you who are paying particular attention to those dates, you will have noticed that for one week, July 25, 26, 27, you have the opportunity to hear all three of the productions in the proper order on consecutive nights. 
So our trilogy weekend will be July 25, Barbara Seville final performance, final performance of each of them. Mm. And then July 26th, Figaro 90210, and then July 27th, I'm going to see if I can make it up that weekend then. Because my June is booked solid, and I'm already out teaching in June. Um, I'll be in New Mexico. But my July isn't booked yet. That would be a good can one I put on my to. marketing hat and, Absolutely. and do a little ad for a second? So if you want 100%. more information about our trilogy weekend, you can find that at chq.org slash trilogy weekend. Perfect. That's the kind of thing we need right mm-hmm. there. This is why you hire somebody specifically to do All that. Right. <laughs> so, so in many, many ways, this uh, 2019 season is... Uh, is changing challenging the way the company has worked because usually we would have a production that opened closed we would send the guest artists away in addition to our young artists each summer we have two or three guest artists in general for each of the productions gotcha so they would come in for the first day of rehearsal stay through the last show and then go home meanwhile the rest of the company stays new guest artists come and start the next rehearsal process but in order to be able to have the repeat of uh barbara seville for Ghosts of Versailles, we had to figure out a way to cast things in a way that we could have our guest artists from Barber of Seville stay through. So our three guest artists in Barber of Seville stay and have roles in uh, Ghosts of Versailles. Figaro 90210 is all our young artists, so they're there the whole summer and can mm-hmm. easily do you know the five performances over the course of our season. Yeah. And then we have Caitlin Lynch coming in just for Ghosts of Versailles to sing uh, Marie Antoinette. Nice. Round out the company and... Uh, it's a lot of moving pieces, and even now as I finish up uh, engaging young artists, there's still details that become clearer each day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm more and more convinced that it is going to actually work. Awesome. How far out are you choosing your season um, lineup? That, too, has, has become more advanced in the last couple years. Yeah. Ordinarily... Uh, Prior to me, um, Jay Lessinger ran the company for 21 years, and the model that he followed was try to announce the upcoming season at the last performance of the prior season. Okay. So, say, you know, the concert at the beginning of August that is the culmination of, say, the 2016 season, announced 2017. Um, for a variety of reasons, we have tried to advance that. Now we are... Um, the goal is to be able to announce our 2020 season at the beginning of June nice. of 2019. The idea, the, the argument from the institution side was because the Chautauqua Institution has a vast amount of programming going mm. on, not mm. just the opera company, right. dare I say. <laughs> um, and the idea has been from the institution side that well people are coming to the institution because of the institution's activity and then whatever the opera company or the theater company or the, or the orchestra is doing is value added right. but isn't the reason it's a destination um, I think that that's not necessarily true I think people are choosing when they come to the institution because of what they might get to see through the opera company through the theater company mm-hmm. and so being able to announce it at a time when they're coming in for the 2019 season and saying, oh, wow, we should start making our plans for next year and knowing in advance what that is, that just makes sense. Yeah. Um, But that means that by May 1st, 
uh, ideally, I have to know what the season is and hopefully who our guest artists are going to be mm. for that season mm-hmm. so that we can get all of the press materials ready to go yeah. and have it officially announced in June. So yeah, I'm working on casting the, um, filling the young artist slots for 2019 right now, but I would say probably a third of my time is spent on 2020. Yeah. Um, I'd like to dig a little further into uh, the Figaro 90210. Um, some people, some diehards are, are solely against, strictly against the modifying of operas, especially classic works like Menelza de Figaro. I think in instances like this, it can be, it can be really important to take a story and make it pertinent to now um, without losing the story. I mean, because you can, I mean, this is a, this is a combination that works both for then and now. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what really leads you to choosing a modified opera? Um, is it, is it specifically the story that's told? Is it kind of a combination of what you can do performance wise with it? Is it kind of all of the above? Uh, it's all of the above. Um, I'm trying to think if we have, this is now my fourth season and this is the first kind of modified opera that we've done. Mm-hmm. Our chamber operas have tended to be the contemporary things. We did the Song right. from the Uproar, Missy Mazzoli's piece. We did Hydrogen Jukebox. We did As One last year. What those pieces all had in common was that they were telling to a contemporary audience a story through a contemporary lens by contemporary creators. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the 18th century, though, Mozart was a contemporary composer yeah there was a day when the marriage of figaro was the newest opera on the planet (laughs) um and so if you didn't like new music you might not like the marriage of figaro um so what i think you what i love about chautauqua is our audience is infinitely curious i think that carries across the board yeah but i'm programming specifically for chautauqua or for people who we hope to bring up to chautauqua right and so having a new spin on something that's traditional isn't necessarily going to throw anybody Mm -hmm. and the fact that we are doing figaro 90210 for five performances in 2019 doesn't take away the existence of the mozart marriage of figaro which one can probably get fairly easily in your hometown or through your library. At any or, given yeah, season. At any given yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for... So I, I, I don't worry too much about that aspect of it as long as I'm convinced that the adaptation of it is pertinent. Yeah. That it's there not just to, to dress it up but to actually say something um, new? Question mark. Um... I don't think that this particular, this Figaro 90210 does not say something new. Yeah. It actually just makes you realize how new what Beaumarchais, Mozart, and De Ponte were saying at the time. And it puts it in a language that is so immediate that you, you can't get away from it. Yeah. It really is about today. Yeah. If, even if we were to do a traditional production of it, I would hope our audience would look at it not as a museum piece, but as something that relates to their lives. We're just translating it to relate to their lives more immediately. I love that. 
I'm really stoked to see that performance. That's because I didn't catch it while it was here, and so like I'm familiar with its existence, yeah. but haven't actually seen it. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating adaptation. Um, I saw it when I was here when I was considering it. I thought, okay, and it was coming to New York. I thought, perfect, I get to, I get to go see it and loved it. Um, Deborah Sinea Moore, who's the vice president of performing and visual arts at the institution, so essentially my boss, mm-hmm. uh, the person who is the first person who has to approve everything that we do. Yeah. Uh, she happened to be in New York for another conference at the time. I said, Deborah, go to see this if you can. And she went. One of the things that we've been trying to do with all of our programming over the last couple of years is at least you know, offer within our home at Norton Hall something that's family friendly, that, that, is, that is incentivized to, uh, to have generations of a family there. Yeah. Like in the amphitheater, where five generations of a family can come and sit next to each other. Well, one of the things that makes that possible is that if you have a gate pass to the institution, then you don't have to pay anything to go to that night. Nice. So it's free. Yeah. So how can, we make, how can we get a parallel of that with the productions that we do in Norton Hall? How can we encourage you to bring your grandkids? So we've had youth ticket um, pricing uh, uh, built into our seasons recently. Um, all of that as a preface to say, Deborah came and saw Figaro 90210, and we were talking the, ne- the next day, and she said, I don't know, Steve, it's, it's really pretty edgy. I don't know, is that, is that really family friendly? <laughs> I said, well, no. But I would, <laughs> I would hazard that no production of The Marriage of Figaro should be family-friendly if you're really doing The Marriage of Figaro. She said, okay, yeah. touche. Um, but when it's in English and it's right there in front of you, it's, it's hard to get away from. Yeah. So it's going to be, we're gonna, we've got language that's going to be rated PG-13. We're not selling youth tickets to it. Um, we, we will message clearly the fact that it has an edge yeah. um, and that it's not necessarily you know, the, kids, the, the opera to bring your eight-year-old to. Makes sense. All right, so let's, let's talk a little bit about some stuff that will aim a little more in your direction, Sarah. What are some of the challenges of, of dealing with a modern opera company? Yeah, I have to think about that a bit. Um, I'm going to reframe for a second because I think a lot of the uh, sort of stereotypes you get about an operatic audience, Mm -hmm. um, when I look at audience data, they don't actually hold true. Okay. So um, what I've been finding and a lot of opera houses have been finding is that um, the sort of average age of the audience um, doesn't mean that they're not on social media. In fact, it means very likely that they are are very attached to their social media yeah. and very active on it and, and want to be involved in that, that kind of um, talking back to the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a bit of a mind shift for me. Um, and I, th- I think you... In marketing, it's always about figuring out how to... Message that new thing in a slightly different way than you have before. Or uh, for me, it's more important that we communicate what the company values are or mm-hmm. um, communicate a um, sort of a personality beyond uh, the what we do as people. Yeah. Um, and I think as a summer opera company, my main challenge has been simply keeping people's attention, mm-hmm. um, having things to say during these nine months where we are, you know, dormant, quote unquote, yeah. as a company. Um, 
and not necessarily from a marketing perspective of, oh, we need you to buy your tickets now because we need an audience in June, but more like, well, we still exist and so you should stay involved in the story that we're trying to tell you that is going to have some results then in June and July and August. Yeah. Um, so you're more creating, in a sense, an emotional attachment to the company over going after the individual um, season because you're, you're not you're looking for an audience that's not per season but like you said it's generations I think we're Chautauqua is particularly blessed in that we're part of the Chautauqua institution community so some of the uh, the pressure that other companies face to um, to sell tickets every night to keep those audiences coming some of that is built into what I do so yeah. for me it's more about how, how do we get the word out to people who are already on the grounds or people who we think might be interested in coming. Um, it feels like there's a little less pressure than some yeah. of my compatriots. Where, um, where on social media are you engaging um, your stuff? We, we are on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, those, are, those are the main ones yeah. for what, me. What are the usernames so they can follow you? Um, well, <laughs> we are at the, let's see, the Chautauqua Opera Company. I believe on Facebook. Okay. okay, so Facebook is the Chautauqua Opera Company. Company, the Chautauqua Opera Company, and Instagram is at Chautauqua Opera. Awesome. I knew I followed you guys, but I had to hunt it down. I think for me, what I love about working, particularly in marketing and opera, is that that change. I don't feel the need to be quite so rapid with the new, newest tools and the newest keeping up on everything. For me, it really is more about the story yeah. and the personal connection um, because in the end, that's what we hope people take away from our performance experiences too, is that personal connection to the work and the, some kind of um, transformation of perspective or, or you know, feeling-related, emotion-related reaction. Yeah. Um, so if my messaging... For example, of I don't know. I mean, I if if I feel like if I choose choose a show, if you message it as like the greatest thing since sliced bread, perhaps that fake marketing then comes back to you yeah. when people see the performance and go, "Well, I expected something flashier or something with like more technical stuff going on, yeah. or that really didn't butter my bread for me." Yeah, um, yeah. I'm finding that opera is a little less about the buzzwords than a lot of the other industries because I've done I mean the bar we're sitting in now I did social media marketing for them for a year and a half um, I work with uh, several different bar groups in New York doing their social media and then I do a lot of artist branding and I've done PR for opera companies and small businesses and I've done some level of PR and marketing at the small business level for seven years now eight years now um, the nice thing about opera being quote-unquote behind the times is that we can take what we know works from small business, particularly small business marketing, and apply it to what's now being a rapid growth in online marketing for opera companies. So while they used to be 15 years behind, it's now like five-ish. And that has changed in the last year and a half alone, has been really, really rapid in that growth. So it's, I always like to see kind of how people deal with those different things. And, but I like that connecting, um, connecting with, the, the, with the company itself. And, and the story for what the company has to say. I really like that a lot. 
And that's not to say that people aren't doing really interesting things with social media oh, in course. the opera world. I mean, I, yes, I heard recently there's a, oh, Santa Fe started a, um, started having Instagram seats instead of tweet seats for some yeah. of their performances and have built an amazing community that way. Yeah. Um, but it really, it really is about connection. For Absolutely. Me. Yeah. I love that. Do you guys have anything else that you wanted to talk about or say or plug or anything? <laughs> well, you know what? You know, we've talked a lot about how the opera company is there to, uh, as, as, a, um, as a resource for the Chautauqua community. Um, but that is one of the big things that we are trying to change and is, has, has shaped a lot of the thinking behind the 2019 season as well. Chautauqua is hard to get to. Mm. You got to drive a lot of hours or you got to fly to Buffalo and drive like another hour and a half or Erie, Pennsylvania. It's not easy to get to. Yeah. Um, and people who want to travel to see opera, people who are willing to travel to hard to get to places, Santa Fe, Glimmerglass, St. Louis, um, they want to have a, a, an amount of activity that they're going there that makes the trip worthwhile. Right. And the structure of the company has never afforded that mm. if somebody came to Chautauqua there was potentially one opera that they could see um, and that is something that I am uh, deliberately trying to change um, so the fact that we have this trilogy weekend is something that is yes a celebration for Chautauqua but is very much raising the flag for the bigger industry and people who will travel for opera in the summer yeah. and saying it is worth coming here to Chautauqua. Not only because we're doing terrific work, but this kind of season is not something that you're going to get at any of the other festivals. Right. Um, this kind of season with these particular guest artists, we're the only show where you get to see it. Yeah. So come on, it's worth making the trip. Um, two years ago, we did uh, Hydrogen Jukebox and Don Pasquale in rep together. And again, that was an experiment, one, to see if we could rehearse two shows at the same time, and, trans uh, and then change over uh, in Norton Hall between those two shows uh, overnight. And it was hard, but we managed to do it. And so that was kind of a, a proof of concept that the 2019 season could work the way I was imagining it at the time. And even at that point, when there was a chance to see Hydrogen Jukebox on a Thursday afternoon and Don Pasquale on Friday evening, we started to see the needle move and people coming from the industry and saying, oh, that, that's why I came, because yeah. I could see two operas. Um, as much as you know, the institution model for an audience coming and spending the whole summer there has dissolved, um, we as an opera company are now stepping up as a motivator to generate new people coming to Chautauqua. So people can look at our season and say, oh, I want to go to Chautauqua for the opera. Then they get there and they go, oh my gosh, you get all these other things. There's the lake and there's the lectures and there's all of the activity that is the Chautauqua institution mm -hmm. is the value added for the opera tourists. Yeah. Um, that is one of the biggest initiatives that I see on our horizon. Awesome. I think this is going to sound like I've drunk a whole lot of Kool-Aid, but um, <laughs> one of the things that has made uh, working for Chautauqua so incredible is I think this company is, is uniquely um, 
really, really sticks behind its values of treating everyone like family. Mm-hmm. Um, and of making that sort of like personal gratitude and generosity part of our the way the company works mm. on every level. So, um, so even when it's a very difficult season for six weeks and everyone's exhausted, there is a primacy on uh, treating people like human beings and holding them accountable for being professional, but also being good colleagues and um, being someone that you want to live with for six weeks. Uh, and that has been, I think that's becoming more wide, widespread in the opera world in general because nobody can afford to spend time with somebody who's not nice to spend time with yeah. mm-hmm. uh, these days. But I think in particular, Chautauqua has a very sort of family aesthetic as a company. Nice. Yeah, and that that culture building desire to to really concretely set out at the beginning of a given season um, to everyone who's new, this is who we are, this is what we're about. Um, There's always... Because anytime you start somewhere new, you hear that, right? Any job, literally any job, you hear that. So to a degree, there's the temptation for that to go in one ear and out the other. But what we have built as we, you know, bring people back um, on staff, we have a very low turnover rate. Um, even within the Young Artist Program, we do frequently bring people back from pre- previous seasons. Um, what we have done by making this a real focus for us, um, by stating it and then following through, is we have empowered those people who are coming back to be able to look at each other and say, no, really, they, they really do mean that. If you have a problem, you can talk to them. They will take you seriously. When, when something goes bad for you personally, you don't have to hide it from your colleagues or from the people running the office. They'll, they'll help you get through it. Mm-hmm. And that, that means a lot. Uh, we've, we've been able to really prioritize that in a meaningful way for both staff and young artists, and I, I think that's so important. And I want to loop that back to where we started this conversation with the young artists and the audition cycle, mm-hmm. because I sit in that room and yes, there are long days, and you hear a lot of singers. I couldn't do what those singers are doing, though. Coming in and having seven, eight minutes, putting it all on the line, performing, and then walk out, and then get on. I mean, get on with your day? Like, then, get on like, a flight? Get, or... really, <laughs> get some lunch? Go back to the office? I, I have so much respect for what these young singers are uh, are wrestling with in trying to build a career and so I know from the from the screening process through the through the outside the room um, of the audition cycle that Michael and Sarah are really creating again a culture there which is you're a human being you're an artist you're here to be an artist with us for us hopefully then for us in this in the future um, create an environment in which people can do their best work from mm-hmm. the audition through the through the season once they're engaged um, and that's something that we try to do in the audition room as well because man hats off to you young singers because that's rough it is not an easy oh. situation to deal with <laughs> there's two other things I want to just touch on yeah, if, absolutely. if we have time um, one of the things that I knew when I 
took over the company because I had been a guest there was I had a sense of what the institution is, what the community is from an artistic standpoint, but also from a family standpoint. I've got two young sons um, and, and my wife, we would go there and they would spend three weeks there and I'd see how families work within the community. And that was uh, something that I wanted us to be reaching out into more. Mm -hmm. We have all these performances. We say, hey, please come over to our house, sometimes pay money to hear what we're doing. Um, but very rarely were we going out into their house and saying, hey, we're just willing to share. And so we created a series uh, in my first season called Opera Invasion, which is a weekly series. So we get, if, if somebody's there for a week, they're gonna get invaded at some point. <laughs> um, and they're playful events. They feel like pop-ups, except they're not pop-ups because they're, in, they're very carefully structured and planned and publicized. So everybody knows to show up for them. And in some ways, gently educational, um, for our audience. I realized through some conversations when I was applying for the job and in interviews, I talked about the audition book that singers had. And somebody was like, what's an audition book? Like, well, there's the five RAs that they have to be able to sing at the drop of a hat that they carry into an audition. Oh, I've never heard of that. And these are, you know, core supporters of us as a company. It's like, hmm, right. well, what can we do to make that more tangible? Yeah. So we created a, um, essentially an audition book concert yeah. with three singers who each have their audition book um, and we give the menu to the audience and then I work the audience say okay what do you want to hear next That's and awesome. so, so we don't know what's going to get sung we know we've got an hour <laughs> and we're probably going to get through most of them yeah. um, but they get that hands-on experience of oh that's what it means to be an opera singer you right. have to be able to sing these things and make it a tangible thing so you know kind of playful educational we do a competition with the boys and girls club which is like a 450 kid day camp uh -huh. at the at the institution so we do so you think you're louder than an opera singer and we have i teach some opera <laughs> phrases from whatever we're doing in the amphitheater and then we go out into the into the baseball field and you know the 36 contestants scream them in at our judges and so the concept of oh you have to sing unamplified healthily you know has, right. and, and it's playful yeah so this opera invasion series has really caught on um and allows us to interact with the greater institution audience. People who wouldn't say, people come up to me all the time after those events and they say, well, I'm not really an opera audience member, but I really loved what you just did. Yeah. Like, okay, hate to break it to you, but you might actually be an opera audience <laughs> member. <laughs> no, 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 I don't, I don't like opera, but that was really fun. I was like, you just listened to opera and you're telling me you had fun. Um, so to, to build those kind of connections with the audience has been uh, a real highlight of the last three, four seasons for me. Um, and then the other thing that I want to just touch on is uh, our composer in residence position. Again, mm. something incredibly important to yeah. me. I work, I'm, I am very fortunate. I work with living composers, living librettists all the time. Yeah. I'm in the trenches with them as they create new repertoire. It gives me a whole different perspective on Don Giovanni when I go and conduct Don Giovanni. Yeah. Um, and... Again, another thing I knew about Chautauqua because of my time up there, and as I said earlier, this, goes, this is especially true for Chautauqua, but I would say it's pretty much true across the boards. They like people. And so if they know, this is my theory, this is my underhanded diabolical plan. 
um, bring new music to Chautauqua, but introduce it through people. So our first composer in residence was Jeremy Gill. Jeremy wrote three pieces that were premiered at Chautauqua, but he was in residence at our, our festival the entire summer. So people got to know Jeremy. They liked mm -hmm. Jeremy. They loved to have conversations with Jeremy. Oh, there's Jeremy. He's the composer. Oh, okay, whatever. Um, and then they would hear a piece by Jeremy. Um, they can then take in that piece as something that they have a context for. Absolutely. Um, and listen to it. His first piece was an absolute home run, uh, and people loved it. Um, then they can say, oh, wow, that was great. I loved, I loved Jeremy's piece. They're not talking about new music. They're not saying, I love new music. They're saying, I love the piece that Jeremy wrote. And then they say, I can't wait to hear what he writes for the next, the next premiere. Yeah. They could come to that premiere, and maybe they don't love it, but they don't discount new music because they didn't like that one piece. Right. And you say, oh, wow, that was, that was an interesting piece. It wasn't really to my taste. I, I'm curious to see what Jeremy writes the next time. Yeah. And so now for each of our seasons, we've had a different composer in residence. And so this idea of opera as a living, breathing art form that is being constantly generated, especially now in America, um, is we're not telling our audience about it. We're just showing it to them. Yeah, and so that has been uh, just a huge step forward. So that then, when we present Missy Mazzoli or Philip Glass or uh, Laura Kaminsky, um, that John Carigliano next summer, there is this bigger context in which our audience can say, "Oh, wow, that's something that was just written. I get it because mm -hmm. I know these three composers." Yeah, well, it's like you said, it's it's so important to keep. To, to perpetuate the art form, to have it this living, breathing thing. I mean, it's, we, we so often look at it as, well, this is an art form that's 400 years old. Yeah, the art form is, but the music doesn't have to be. Um, and if we, want to, if we want to continue the art form moving forward, um, I think new pieces are, are a, a huge part of that. I just had on um, uh, Clint Borzoni and John De Los Santos. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about the Copper Queen yep. um, a little bit. And... Because I got to I got to go to the third workshop for that at Opera America, and um, I, they're both clients of mine. I know both of them pretty well. But to see kind of a new piece in action when you know the composer, having that tie there, uh, it makes you feel so much more engaged in the art form as a whole. Uh, and if you don't work in the music industry, but you get to know a composer, you've had a real conversation with the composer, and then you see that composer's work, is Something that sticks with you. Yeah. And it's a totally it, it, different experience. You, you keep coming back and wanting that more and more and more. So I love that you guys have that, the composer in residence thing. That's yeah. a huge strength. It's about it's just what we see in America right now. And I'm going to say it because I've got a microphone in front of me. We are in a golden age of American opera. Period. End of, end of statement. Yeah. Will it be 50 years? Will it be 20 years? Will it be 70 years? Who knows? But we will look back on this time and say, that was a golden age of, of creation of new American opera. Um, I'm going to steal a story from Mark Skorka from about 10, 15 years ago. He, uh, and this was before, what we've got now is a critical mass of activity that, that's being created. Mark Skorka 10, 15 years ago said, you know, nobody, Nobody goes to see Ace Ventura 2 
and doesn't like it and then walks out of the movie theater thinking, you know, I guess I don't like films. I don't like new movies. They say, oh, wow, well, okay, I didn't really like that, but I'll go see a movie again. But that was where we were 20 years ago with contemporary opera. People would go to see like the one, the one of the five that was happening that year. Yep. And say, well, I don't know, that wasn't really a masterpiece. Maybe I'll just go back to Tosca. Yep. And now there's so much activity that the audience perception of it has been transformed. Yes. And people can go and say, wow, I really like that aspect of that piece and I can't wait to see what the next one is. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting with me and Thank you, coming man. out on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. Uh, I'm really stoked to, I'm going to have to come out in July. 25, 26, 27. There Please we go. Do. Please do. The, the Opera yeah. Weekend. Trilogy yeah. Weekend. We'll make yeah. it happen. All right. Thanks a lot. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with two interview episodes and two social media sound bites each month. You can find me directly on Instagram at the Beard and Lens, and the podcast Instagram is at Opera Biz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz podcast.